This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Once one of the top wealthiest cities in the United States, Buffalo's historic Elmwood District could once again be a model for American cities. On this week's PreserveCast, join us as we talk with Clinton Brown, a heritage and project architect, about his book, Olmsted's Elmwood, The Rise, Decline, and Renewal of Buffalo's Parkway Neighborhood, a model for American cities. Brown takes us through this neighborhood's rich history, devastating decline, and impressive and exciting renewal. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Clinton Brown, a heritage and project architect. And we're going to be talking all about his book, Olmsted's Elmwood, The Rise, Decline, and Renewal of Buffalo's Parkway Neighborhood. Um, Special topic for me as a native Buffalonian to have on um, uh, not only a fantastic uh, architect, but but a great historian of Buffalo and this just wonderful uh, resource in the city of Buffalo. Um, and so we're going to jump into that here in a second, but we like to get to know folks that we're talking to. So Clinton, give us a sense, where'd you grow up? Um, and what got you into architecture and, and not just architecture, but the historic preservation, uh, wing of architecture? Well, Nick, it's not only an honor to be with a fellow Buffalo native, but, uh, one among, Many Buffalonians who've gone out and done great things in the world, I've tried to do them locally. And I started uh, by really having the luck of DNA and geography. Uh, My DNA is people who built things, engineers, uh, architects, uh, uh, and others who made things happen. Uh, As an oldest child, I often had the feeling I had to live up to them. Uh, which was a motivator, and also geography. I grew up in the Niagara River region. The Niagara River empties Lake Erie into Lake Ontario as part of the Great Lakes and is the border between the United States and Canada, between New York and Ontario. And I grew up in both cities of Buffalo in the New York side and the heritage village of Niagara and the Lake uh, in Ontario, where the river empties into Lake Ontario at at Old Fort Niagara that the French built uh, to guard this gateway to the continent. So I grew up in a place loaded with a sense of history, similar to Maryland uh, and other places, but my family uh, participated in it in a way in such that I'm a descendant of American Revolutionary War soldiers and United Empire loyalists who stayed loyal to the United States, and were given uh, land at at Niagara Falls in a place now called Chippewa, which they built. Uh, So I'm from a mixed marriage and had that sense of history, responsibility, and and carrying it forward. So my mother was extraordinarily influential because she grew up with ancestors in both countries. And my grandmother, who was a Niagara Falls native, and used to take me around Niagara Falls and show me buildings. I think oftentimes historic preservationist architects are are taught by someone to look at buildings and understand and appreciate them. So that's some of the background. The key factor in that was that my 
both sets of grandparents lived near in, in Lewiston, New York, near the uh, Robert Moses power plant. This was under construction as I was a child. And, and I was sent to live with my grandparents many weekends and saw the transformation of that place from a farm with black and white cows to one of the world's largest hydroelectric power stations that my mother's father uh, conceived at the turn of the century. So I, I took a and got to watch under construction in the last years of his life. So that's the DNA, that's the geography. And uh, uh, my mother's admonition was to leave the room better for your having been there, which is a bit of an obligation, but also an opportunity. So I grew up playing in the dirt with trucks and making power projects uh, and blocks. Playing with blocks in kindergarten was probably my best educational experience. <laughs> All of those combined to say, I, I want to design places. Uh, I want to renew historic places in honor of our ancestors. And those are the, that's the combination that drives me uh, every day. Well, you're, you're obviously speaking my language. I mean, I, I grew up in these areas and my first job, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on Preserve Cast, but my first job, first actual like get a check job, um, and I guess first job in, in history was working at Old Fort Niagara. So, oh my goodness. so I, I know the, the places that you're describing quite well. And it occurs to me that we should get somebody from Old Fort Niagara on to talk about all the good things that they've done there um, with that 18th century fort. So you're painting the picture of, of sort of, you know, imbued with, uh, you know, uh, this sense of history and sense of place. Um, and also, the, you know, the... the um, Hydroelectric project is a is a fascinating piece, and there's some really cool architecture associated with that as well. I love going to um, that facility and, and taking taking a poke around that. But um, you jump from sort of this childhood, grown up, uh, deeply you know entrenched in seeing buildings and looking at things, and then you went and got your architecture degree. Where'd you go to school? And and then when did you where did, how did you start uh, practicing? Did you jump into your own practice? How did you get into uh, preservation work? I have a classical education, Nick, and having attended Franklin and Marshall College, which are two colleges formed originally by Benjamin Franklin and Frederick Marshall, and then uh, uh, worked in uh, an architecture firm in Niagara Falls for a, a year or two and applied and was able to attend the University of Virginia. So my influences as an architect came from the founding uh, fathers. Uh, Thomas Jefferson being at the University of Virginia. And the University of Virginia was at an interesting time when I was there. I graduated in 1980 because it was a debate between sort of the Midwest Louis Sullivan uh, and Frank Lloyd Wright uh, schools of thinking about architecture and making place. We studied Christopher Alexander about making place, but it was also the influx of the European modernists who were coming from Texas, Cornell, Princeton. And there was a lot of debate in those three years about what architecture is. So it was a very influential time to be there. And it was a brand new Petro Belushi Design School of Architecture uh, in which I lived, uh, even as I was married and had two children in Charlottesville. Uh, as you may know, an architect often has his, his or her first home as the architecture studio. So that was my education. 
I graduated from uh, uh, that, uh, having the experience of working for the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies in New York, which was Peter Eisman and Peter Wolf, at a time when architects uh, around the world were traveling through New York, particularly the Europeans traveling through New York to go to the Japanese uh, uh, job opportunities that they didn't have in Europe. So I met all the superstars of the time. And yet I was committed to being just a simple architect back home to redevelop and redesign my city, which in the 1980s appeared to be dying. So I felt a strong compulsion, despite being on a waiting list to work for Venturi and Rauk in Philadelphia, it was a recession. My best opportunity was to go back to Western New York, where I would more easily find a job and make a difference. So that's how that ties together. It's so fascinating. You know, the the National Preservation Partners Network that I have the good fortune to be the, the chair of right now um, went to Buffalo this past summer and kind of poked around and um, you know, I got to introduce some of our partners there and, um, and Jesse Fisher, who at the time was with Preservation Buffalo Niagara. And I, I talked about how, like, I feel like growing up, I lived through some of like the saddest times in Western New York history. And mm-hmm. now to see where Buffalo is and in many ways um, succeeding because it has um, reinvested in those historic places. I mean, it's the it's the history of that community and the architecture and the sense of place that makes Buffalo a very different place than any other. So um, you're right in that the eighties, it was, you said it, it seemed like it was falling apart. I think it, it was more than it seemed like it. I think it was a pretty tough time and now to go there and we encourage people to go there. And we're going to talk about a, a great place that they could go, um, which is the focus of your book, Olmsted's Elmwood, The Rise, Decline, and Renewal of Buffalo's Parkway Neighborhood. We're going to have a link in the show notes to a place where you can uh, pick up a copy of this. It's a model for America's cities is the end of that title. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, the question I have here for you is what inspired you to write the book? But obviously the inspiration probably comes from driving Elmwood and just being like in all awe of sort of what it is and and how it's developed over time. And it has a fascinating story from the earliest settlement patterns to, uh, you know, Frederick Law Olmsted to the present day and its renewal. Um, But maybe instead of what inspired you to write it, because the inspiration obviously I'm sure comes from just being there, but, but what was the, when did you decide, you know, we've got to put a book together on this story? That that's a, a interesting opportunity to explain a little bit of history. We were engaged by the city of Buffalo to survey certain sections of the city for what was called at the time HUD compliance. The Department of Housing and Urban Development was giving money to the city to work on individual buildings and needed to know for Section 106 compliance that there weren't historic resources that were being damaged in that effort. So it was the first, one of the first times uh, we were asked, or I was asked to look at the city from the point of view of what's here and how did it happen. That was 2006. And eventually it became clear that the Elma district was uh, nationally significant, something none of us here otherwise knew. Uh, and then uh, in 2008, 2009, the Preservation League of New York State and others worked together to pass an historic tax credit for homeowners of uh, in uh, qualifying census tracts, which the city was, in uh, 
with National Register listed houses. And my wife and I were in our house. We were very poor. We couldn't afford to re-roof it or repaint it. Uh, so the missing piece was creating a, a National Register historic district. Uh, in our case, Elmwood West. So we worked with neighbors in a grassroots effort to create that National Register Historic District. And uh, that was listed in uh, 2014, December 2014. And we were able to borrow some money and fix our roof and uh, fix our, uh, repaint our house. But so did everybody else. So we learned from that lesson that uh, while as a result of that, property values went up, because there was such a large district and there's so many properties, the uh, tax assessments actually went down. So uh, we've approached historic preservation as, as a business ever since. On the other hand, there had been no significant investment in Elmwood for two generations, from the 1920s to uh, the uh, 1990s, and none of it was substantial. And yet, as Elmwood became recognized by outsiders, Joan Bozer, the founder of Buffalo Friends of Olmstead Parks, and, and later the National Association of Olmstead Parks, a guy named Will Clarkson, a businessman who with people wrote Buffalo and Architecture's Guide, still one of the best architecture guides ever published by MIT Press, and Stanford Lipsy, who came in to run the Buffalo News for his friend Warren Buffett. These outsiders came in with a fresh point of view and said to us locals, you have no idea that what you have left is, is so significant. So those forces coalesced to attract a renewal uh, in Elmwood in particular that was attracting development that was inappropriate. It was too big. It was not characteristic of Elmwood. It was generic architecture. And I realized that people didn't, like me that grew up not knowing how important the place was. Uh, to paraphrase Marshall McLuhan, the fish don't know there's water because they swim in it. And someone had to tell the story about how this place came to be and why it's important and why we need to take better care of it. Uh, and historic district's not enough to attract new investment and to reinvest and renew well. So that's how the book came to be, I felt an obligation to tell it. Once I started, the story flowed over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's it's quite the book. I mean, it it is a it is a solid piece. And I mean, as a as again as a native Buffalonian, I was just enthralled with it. I thought it was really cool, um, and it just tells a really interesting story and a lot of pieces of it that I had no clue about. Um, like you said, like I think a lot of people grow up there, and I'm sure most of my family, you know, love Elmwood, but don't know why it's so valuable and and to kind of look at it through those lens. Let's take a step back because the story that you told about why a place matters and then its renewal and, you know, the architecture of anywhere kind of getting foisted on it could be a story told all across the country. But let's talk about Elmwood and put it a little bit of context or maybe paint the picture for somebody who's never been there before. What's the, the, the size of it? Like how, how big of an area are we talking about and what kind of um, – architecture do we have there? You know, maybe take somebody on a, a mind's eye drive through Elmwood. We don't have to cover every block, but um, what is this place? How would you describe it to someone? How has it evolved over time? And I guess perhaps why does it matter? It is the phase of Buffalo's growth after the 
American Civil War that made Buffalo wealthy and one of the most significant cities uh, in, in the world, certainly in America, among the most millionaires in America for capita, because the wealth of the Erie Canal allowed the convergence of land, people, and opportunity. And the original Joseph Ellicott design walking village uh, burst at the seams with population that was doubling every decade. With the advent of the horse-drawn streetcar, which we would call rapid rail today, people were able within the same amount of time to live a, a lot further away from where they worked. Uh, so people who lived above the store as a couple in the Joseph Ellicott City uh, or village could uh, now have a place in the country. And the first people to go were the, by today's standards, the billionaires. And yet when Frederick Olmsted designed Central Park in New York, the Buffalo leadership felt very competitive and said, well, we have to keep up with New York. Uh, and we have to have a Central Park, too. Civil War intervened, and they couldn't attract Olmsted here until 1868. And what he did in conceiving an armature of parkways connecting parks throughout the city was provide a green framework around which this population growth could occur. And one of the reasons Elmwood's different uh, than, than others, but similar to many streetcar suburbs of the time, was that these Buffalo business people brought in Olmsted to make Buffalo competitive as a place in which to invest and live well. They formed after he dressed them in August 1868, about 70 business people at one of their colleagues' homes. Uh, immediately formed a group to implement his vision. And uh, within a year, they had set up as an independent group with city funding to implement this plan. In the Buffalo Park Commissioner's second report, 1872, they said, every rich man can have his estate. What we're doing is for the regular people. And they're telling us that it's the right thing to do because they are starting to occupy the unfinished parks, traveling there in the wagons of their trade. So this was welfare capitalism. This was culture and commerce. This is after the Civil War, the enormous trauma of the Civil War. And Frederick Law Homestead was the executive director of the American, uh, the United States Sanitary Commission, which was con convened to help wounded soldiers survive. And uh, three of the park commissioners had been on his board. And this was a deliberate effort to help heal a traumatized uh, a community with parks and nature that uh, none of us who that I know of who grew up here had any idea of any of this, but the values are in the geography, are in the landscape of what was up till then 
of forests that had been converted to farms and converted to nurseries. So that's a long way of saying this is why this second phase of buffalo's growth was uh, so unique and is so important to understand because, uh, in my view, we have a responsibility to pass it on better to the next generation. So Joan Bozer, in founding the Buffalo Friends of Olmstead Park, set the standard for what's now an international network of Olmstead design park uh, folks. That originated in Buffalo out of the realization from an outsider what we didn't we took for granted. It's a nice place to live. Parks are beautiful. Thank goodness the city made them happen. The city was a partner in a public-private partnership to make them happen. So that's the other lesson. Elmwood's origins came from regular people doing extraordinary things. Uh, I'll give you an example. We've never seen in any city the number of women developers who would buy a farm, subdivide it, sell off the lots, or build houses. The houses were deliberately marketed to women uh, uh, to have their own mini estate. If you buy a double, you live in the lower floor, rent out the upper floor, or vice versa, and you live virtually rent-free because your tenant's paying your mortgage. This is at a time when the man is taking the streetcar to his job downtown at the factory or the bank, and the woman is in charge of her own estate. She's walking to Elmwood to get her supplies. She might have some part-time or full-time help. She's buying fruit trees and cultivating a garden. She has all the modern uh, built-in refrigeration, screens on the windows, uh, ideal heating system. Uh, it was sort of the science of domesticity, which has been written about, is happening in this streetcar suburb uh, and the rest. So uh, that was the extraordinary story that makes it different than, say, the pre-Civil War Buffalo, that it was built uh, along the lines of Joseph Ellicott, who said, in laying out Buffalo in 1804, this is a place designed by nature to be the grand emporium of the world because he anticipated the Erie Canal. So his Quaker values, his masonry, his uh, having worked for Joseph Ellicott in Washington, D.C., all converged here in this vision to sell lots to settlers moving west and trying to get them to stop and stay in Buffalo rather than go on to Cleveland or Detroit, which were doing the same thing at the same time. And that was repeated by the people who brought in Olmsted after the Civil War for the same reasons, to attract capital and people. And somehow along the way, Nick, uh, we, we lost that as, as Buffalonians. And I'm trying to resuscitate that nature of our community for the 21st century. So it's interesting that you talk, and obviously, I mean, there's so much to get into here. Uh, you know, you touched on Ellicott and sort of the initial plan and then how that morphs into the the district and also the park component. And so you have architecture and parks and this fascinating social history associated with it as well. Um, so when does the decline start, right? Like what, 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 what hits this beautiful, wonderful district with all of these great components. When does the decline start? And then we'll, we won't just be with decline. We'll, we'll jump into renewal eventually. But, but what, where are the first signs that there's some sort of cracks in the way Buffalo is treating this landscape and this district? 
there are a number of factors that all converge sort of simultaneously. And it happened really at the peak in the teens and 19 teens and 1920s. Elmwood is now built out. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, many Buffalonians who were the descendants of the founders who created the wealth were selling off the companies or overspending. Income tax comes in. They're forced to live in more humble circumstances. Buffalo is outpaced uh, by the growth of the railroads. Buffalo had 26 railroads. Originally, most of them were owned or had some ownership from Buffalonians, but as they got consolidated, they were uh, became parts of the conglomerates of railroads, automobiles, uh, manuf manufacturing uh, of all sorts as those companies cons consolidated nationally with local companies. Uh, the one that didn't go was Marine Midland Banks. That was a consolidation of Erie Canal Way banks. And so they retained, uh, stayed on. But uh, there was uh, also the uh, rise of the automobile. So the next Olmstead suburb is to the north of the Elmwood district, and it's an automobile suburb. It's a, it's a picturesque landscape. It's called Parkside for a reason, because it's just north of Delaware Park, which was the head of the park and parkway system that Olmstead designed in the 1868 and 1870s. Uh, the uh, huge uh, companies such uh, as John Albright's Lackawanna Steel was not locally owned. It became Bethlehem Steel and out-of-town management. John Albright's, excuse me, uh, John Larkin's Soap Company, which was sort of an early Sears Roebuck, an early Amazon, which had a huge national impact uh, and, and had a Frank Lloyd Wright-designed headquarters, uh, uh, faltered with subsequent leadership. Uh, which was not up to the snuff of the of the entrepreneurs. This is not unique to Buffalo, but these forces converged as trade patterns changed uh, uh, nationally, uh, as leadership did not get renewed, as ownership was lost. And 1920s is really the time when Ellsworth Statler's mansion is demolished because the taxes on the mansion couldn't be paid by the descendants. Larkin's mansion is demolished. Uh, Albright's Albright goes broke in the Depression, uh, completely broke, and his uh, huge estate gets subdivided. So it was uh, circumstances that were uh, uh, not in Buffalo's control. And then a generation later, the St. Lawrence Seaway took away Buffalo's centrality as a nexus of trade. And while some Buffalonians saw it at the time, uh, most did not do anything. Nobody did anything about it. And Buffalo's historic crossroads uh, was taken away uh, by grain going south to Louisiana through the Mississippi and uh, uh, goods coming and going through the St. Lawrence Seaway. So all those factors converged and the leadership just did not have what it took to overcome them until we get jump start to the 70s. You know, part of that was an expressway cutting off Delaware Park from its front porch, Lincoln Parkway, you know, the, the reason for Elmwood's being was sort of decapitated. And now that's being changed, actually, but it's been 
30 years since Joe, 40 years since Joan Bozer first stepped up and others and said, hey, uh, we got to put this place back together. So that's sort of the, uh, 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 and that was part of a grassroots effort of citizens to create a food co-op, to create uh, uh, bicycle-friendly places that earned Elmwood under the leadership of an Elmwood Village Association, which was formed by residents and merchants in Elmwood to save it from, from the shopping malls, uh, uh, earned a top 10 neighborhood designation because uh, folks stepped up, as historic preservationists often do, uh, to save their place and make it worth living in again. So what is it like today for somebody who's going to come and visit because now they're so interested and excited? They've read your book and they're going to come to Buffalo. What will they find today and and what does the future hold for the district? I mean, now now you're kind of putting on your prognostication hat here, but what are your hopes for? What do you see coming? Well, uh, the Albright Knox Art Gallery, which was funded originally by John Albright and built in uh, an Olmstead Park, uh, hundred plus years ago is undergoing a quarter billion dollar reinvestment as one of the world's great contemporary art museums. Across the street, Buffalo State College is uh, just changed its name to Buffalo State University to reflect its increased stature as an educational institution. It's the largest factor of bringing people in who, who fall in love with the Elmwood District and want to stay after graduation. So they're, they're really, uh, again, the Olmstead Park and Parkway system is, is unique in the world. Uh, and it's well maintained by the Buffalo Olmstead Parks Conservancy. Uh, so uh, they would also see uh, a place built in which to live well. I, I think uh, Vitold Rudzinski in his book about Olmstead called A Clearing the Distance who has a chapter uh, on Buffalo, concludes by saying, Frederick Law Olmsted showed how life could be like in the industrial city. And that's the theme, uh, I think, that we have the opportunity to fulfill going forward, that we can show that this 19th and 20th century place can be made worth living in competitively with anywhere else because of the quality of family friendliness, entertainment, cultural, and other opportunities for young people. We need to be more senior friendly. We need to be more diverse. Uh, we need to be more, more diverse economically, racially, ethnically uh, uh, than we have been in recent times. Uh, and we need to take better care of the public realm. If we could take as good a care of Elmwood and the other streets, as Olmsted Parks Conservancy takes of the Olmsted Park and Parkways, man, we'd have a spectacular place that would be a top one neighborhood. Uh, and examples I cite in the book that listeners may be familiar with include the Oneida Community Mansion House in Oneida, New York, which is the longest running utopian commune in the United States. And it's not a commune anymore, but it's still open as an institution uh, founded by people in the so-called burnt over district when upstate New York was the place to experiment with new ways of living uh, between the opening of the Erie Canal and the Civil War. And many listeners will be familiar with the Chautauqua Institution, 
which was the original Chautauqua institution, founded as a Sunday school camp on Lake Chautauqua, south of Buffalo, that is a huge, well-managed, culturally, economically, racially, and youth-diverse international institution that uh, I think is exemplary. We can do that in Elmwood. We can do that in our communities as historic preservationists and architects if we work together to fulfill the aspirations of our ancestors and the values that they represented in creating uh, these places in which uh, some of us get to live. Well, it's a big charge, but it's an important place. Um, And uh, obviously, if people want to learn more about it, we'll have a link in the show notes to the book. You can pick it up, learn all about it, and then go to Buffalo with the book and and ground truth it and get to see it in the flesh. Um, You know, before we go, as we kind of... um, move to a conclusion here. Um, your architecture firm, what are you working on right now? Give people a sense for the kind of projects that you're working on right now. We have uh, a mind-boggling array of small projects that take an acupunctural approach to renewing historic buildings and heritage places. Uh, Yesterday, we were the state officials uh, in Buffalo who were looking at projects that uh, were small buildings abandoned that people have renewed with the help of a state fund called the New York Main Street Program. Uh, and and those are not, uh, the buildings were built for big industries, uh, but they're now occupied by small grassroots places uh, 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 and operations called, uh, such as Go Bike Buffalo, uh, uh, Buffalo Urban Gardens, uh, an African immigrant entrepreneur who's opened a UPS place in uh, the inner city. So we're working on those. We've helped as a grant writing firm. Uh, Our customers raise, I think we're over $45 million in grants to help subsidize and support renewal. Some of the bigger projects are uh, uh, at Old Fort Niagara. We're working with them on uh, creating an authentic uh, replica of a native dwelling that the British would have built for their Seneca's uh, leadership when the Seneca's were driven out of the Genesee Valley during the Revolutionary War and sought refuge at Old Fort Niagara. South of the city, we're working with a group called Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation, or CAMP, who stepped up to save their 1914 Civil War memorial created by Cattaraugus County in honor of all the sons and some daughters that they sent to fight in the Civil War. Uh, Upstate New York sent a lot of people to fight and unfortunately die in the Civil War. Uh, In between, we uh, have uh, a renovation of a bank in downtown Rochester for an African-American entrepreneur who's developing uh, this uh, turn of the last century bank. Uh, And on and on and on. it's tough to keep track. We've got so many of them. I, I know another one, Nick. We uh, are working in Jamestown, New York, in the Hotel Jamestown, half of which has been occupied by the Jamestown Housing Authority for 50 years, half of which is vacant. And they finally got title to it during for tax foreclosure. So what do you do with 50,000 square feet of 1920s state-of-the-art hotel that's vacant in downtown Jamestown, New York? We wrote a business plan for its rehabilitation. And guess what? The market research showed us that uh, co-working 
short-term rental and market rate apartments would fill the building and pay for its rehabilitation with its tax credits. So uh, we're proud to be part of rejuvenating a place where suddenly a city like, industrial city like Jamestown has a market study that's bankable that says you can do uh, 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 market rate housing there. It doesn't have to be subsidized. This is a tremendous change. And I think part of the back to the city, back to the village movement, you know, uh, from the digital age uh, that was accelerated by the COVID pandemic. And it's not unlike the post-Civil War period in which the Buffalo business leaders brought in Olmstead to rejuvenate their city to make it worth living in. So we do this, we're re reimagining places every day and we absolutely love it. And we uh, are happy uh, to talk to anybody who's interested in doing that wherever they may be. Well, we'll make sure to put a, a link in the show notes to that as well. And sort of, as you said, what's what's old is, is new again. Uh, it's this another period of resurgence and renewal. Um, and before we go, we ask the most difficult question of anyone. What's your favorite historic place or site? I think that's a very hard question. Uh but I, I would crystallize it in one place that relates to where you're such an extraordinary leader uh, through Preservation Maryland. And it's the Willowbank Estate in Queenston, Ontario. 1830s, uh, a, a builder-built colonial mansion when Queenston-Lewiston was the center of trade between North and you know, Canada and United States. Uh, the, the Hamilton family. Uh, and uh, we, uh, I, I'm on the board and have spent uh, with other people uh, a, a lot of energy successfully reimagining the place as the Willowbank School of Restoration Arts. That's unique in having a three-year certificate program for people who are interested in using their hands and their head to renew uh, how we live on this earth. And there's a waiting list uh, of employers for our graduates. What's interesting in terms of how I particularly grew up is that my ancestors would have trod those floorboards because uh, the Cummings, the Kirkpatricks from the United Empire Loyalist side of my family uh, were the ones who were in business in a Canada's first railroad, Upper Canada's first railroad with the Hamiltons. And growing up between Buffalo, New York and Niagara Lake, Ontario, in the old days, the bridge crossed between Lewiston and Queenston. And I can remember as a toddler in the back of my mother's Morris uh, a car going by that building and noticing it as a toddler. That building had something special because it was a magnificent columned stone structure, willowbank.ca. And so going back to the start of this conversation as to one's origins, I came to the conclusion that that might be the place my family's been associated with for when was the Revolutionary War? Almost 50 years ago. And I'm one of the few left here to uh, find new life for that building and many others with the Willowbank School of Restoration Arts. So I'm so appreciative of that question because we don't often get to think about that sort of thing. Yeah. 
it's a perfect way to end the conversation, talk about sort of how we got into this and and where we can bring new life to historic places. And obviously you've made that passion your career. It comes through not only in this interview, but in the book itself, uh, which we uh, hope all of our listeners will pick up. Um, Clinton, it's been a pleasure and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure too. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.